listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 59. Though it is not a labor story per se, we know that, like us, many of you have probably been riveted to the news coming out of Ferguson, Missouri this week as protests continue over a police officer's shooting of unarmed Michael Brown. As protests have gone on, heavily armed police have fired tear gas and so-called less lethal projectiles, which include rubber bullets and wooden bullets, at crowds that include national media figures. Reporters from around the world, including friend of this podcast Ryan Devereaux, and even National Lawyers Guild legal observers have been arrested while attempting to do their job and cover the protests and the police crackdown. Police brutality, and particularly the killing by police of people of color, particularly young black men, is not just a problem in Ferguson. Right here in New York, the local labor movement is joining with civil rights organizations to have a march this weekend to protest the death of Eric Garner, a local Staten Island man whose death at the hands of a police officer was ruled homicide. The officer has not been arrested or charged. The United Federation of Teachers and 1199 SEIU, the healthcare workers local, are co-sponsoring a march on Saturday in Staten Island with the NAACP and Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network. A statement from 1199 reads, As healthcare workers, we care deeply about the health and safety of our communities. This is why we are mobilizing with tens of thousands of New Yorkers. The UFT in particular has faced backlash from some of its members and from the police unions for joining this march, but a statement in response to this backlash on its Facebook page reads, The UFT has a long history of activism on behalf of our students, their families, and all the communities of our city. UFT members who choose to take part in Saturday's march will be continuing that history. We support the right to due process for all people, especially police officers, who often do difficult jobs under trying circumstances. We know that justice in the wake of Eric Garner's tragic death will be best served by a thorough and transparent investigation. Saturday's march will be an opportunity to show the rest of the country that New York City is united in its belief in justice for all. And speaking of uh, community labor alliances, uh, over in the Bay Area, a boat from Israel has been effectively blocked for, as of this recording, going on three or four days now. On Saturday afternoon, more than 1,000 protesters gathered at the West Oakland Bay Area Rapid Transit Station and marched about one and a half miles to the Port of Oakland. Um, and they were planning on erecting a picket line, but as uh, Julia Carey Wong reports in In These Times, midway through the journey, they were actually pleasantly surprised when they received word that the ship would not dock for the rest of the day. Apparently, they had gotten the uh, Israeli company Zim so intimidated that uh, they decided to hold off on actually docking. And uh, the Block the Boat movement, as it's called, is um, essentially an extension of the BDS campaign boycott divestment sanctions, and it is targeting Israel's largest cargo shipping company, Zim. And it's set up to basically set up port blockades um, throughout the United States and Canada and a show of solidarity with uh, the cause of Palestinian liberation. And they issued a statement saying, from its founding in 1945 by the Jewish Agency for Israel and Hisredat, Zim has served Israeli settler colonialism, bringing settlers to Palestine and serving as Israel's only maritime connection during the 1948 war, supplying food, freight, and military equipment used, of course, to carry out the Nakba. 
The worldwide commerce conducted by Zim today funds the occupation of Palestine with revenue generated on every continent. So as part of this international campaign, this boat blockade is uh, supposed to send a strong message not only to the state of Israel, but also to the U.S. government saying that ordinary citizens are ready to stand up. There's uh, some interesting labor solidarity in here, too, because it was not just a citizen-led effort. There were rank-and-file longshore workers' union folks out there on the front lines, and they agreed to honor the picket line. And that was similar to an action that the uh, longshore workers took in solidarity with the activists of the Mavi Marmara, who were, as you might recall, um, attacked by Israeli forces in 2010 when they were attempting to drive a humanitarian flotilla to bring aid to the Gaza Strip. So that brings us to today. Um, Right now, things are still in suspense at the port. Uh, The workers and the pro-Palestinian activists are still out there going strong. Uh, Check in these times for ongoing updates on the action there. And, um, you know, we'll see. Maybe they'll actually turn around and it'll actually be one more victory stateside for a change for the BDS movement. So stay tuned. Back here in New York, the New York's Times Square has in recent years often been compared to Disneyland minus the rides. One thing it does have in common with the theme park is an increasing number of people who dress up as beloved superheroes, cartoon characters, and yes, even Disney characters, and pose for photos with tourists for tips. Now, the New York Daily News has reported that those characters are talking union. In the face of pressure from the NYPD to register themselves with the city and a, quote, information campaign by the police department, which it should be noted maintains a neon lit station right in Times Square where its officers also often pose for photos with tourists. This information campaign is telling tourists that tipping these characters is optional. So that has led about 50 of these performers to meet with the labor community group La Fuente to discuss the possibility of a some sort of labor group like the non-union formations that represent taxi drivers or street vendors in the city. Many of these performers are recent immigrants who have li- limited English, which puts them at a communication disadvantage anyway, and they say that since the NYPD, quote, information campaign began, their proceeds have been shrinking. People don't see us with respect. We support our families with the tips they give us, says Jorge Luis of Queens, who dresses as Batman. Ever since they started handing out the flyers, people take photos with us and walk away without even saying thank you. For more on New York's non-union labor organizations, including La Fuente, you can listen to Belabored episode 49 with Ruth Milkman. And from Times Square to Starbucks, which Times Square has plenty of. Starbucks actually got a little bit of bad press in the New York Times recently with uh, a very long and uh, intricately reported feature um, focusing on the story of Jeanette Navarro, a 22-year-old single mom doing the barista hustle in San Diego. The story depicts her erratic hours, the toll it's taking on her family life as uh, her household is consumed by financial stress, and the really grueling sort of scheduling practices at Starbucks that are 
pretty much parallel to a lot of uh, low-wage food service jobs as well as retail stores. Um, and Starbucks is really presented as part of this uh, you know, marginal low-wage economy that um, jerks workers around regularly by giving them crazy schedule hours where they're doing things like uh, the dreaded clopening, which is the uh, closing of the shop and then reopening the store a couple of hours later with just a few hours for sleep in between, and other sorts of very very exploitative and exhausting uh, scheduling arrangements such as that. So um, in the wake of this, Starbucks sort of put its uh, PR damage control machine into high gear and issued a statement saying that it would make a number of changes to its scheduling practices. Uh, For instance, they vowed that all work hours must be posted at least one week in advance. And that is a policy that, as the New York Times report, has only been loosely followed in the past. So they might actually start to enforce their own rules now, which I guess is sort of an improvement. And they also announced that baristas with uh, more than an hour's commute to their Starbucks outlet would be given the option of transferring to a closer location. And the idea was that uh, people would no longer have these crazy long commutes. You know, some of these measures are pretty lukewarm. None of them are designed to really fundamentally change um, scheduling practices at Starbucks. And there has already been pushback from labor advocates who say, look, you know, a week in advance is really nothing. You know, you can't plan monthly daycare arrangements around that. You can't budget for next month's rent around that. So I spoke with the Starbucks Workers Union on some of these announced changes, and they told me that what they would really want to see is for all baristas to be notified a month in advance of their schedules and to have their schedules accommodated on the basis of seniority. And in addition to that, they would also like a living wage. That would also be nice. Speaking of the Starbucks Workers Union, uh, I reported earlier this week on some of the uh, issues that they raise in a recent report talking about the vast divergence between the corporate shareholder profits and the workers' wages, which have essentially stagnated, and also the grueling schedules, which have made Starbucks really not a sustainable workplace. And so they are now calling on Starbucks to change their labor practices and respect their baristas as what they are, which is um, real employees who are deserving of stable work schedules and wages that are more than $10 an hour. And uh, if you are a Starbucks worker, we want to hear from you. You can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. We've been talking a lot about civil rights this week, and this week we're going to talk about labor at organizing as a civil right. We have as our guest today Moshe Marvin, who is a labor lawyer, fellow at the Century Foundation, the author of articles on labor and organizing at The Nation, In These Times, The New Republic, and Right Here at Dissent. He is also the author which, with Richard D. Kallenberg of the 2012 book Why Labor Organizing Should Be a Civil Right, Rebuilding a Middle Class Democracy by Enhancing Worker Voice. Now, the idea in his book has become a bill before Congress. Moshe joins us to talk about this idea and more from his recent work. So you wrote a book with Richard Kallenberg about how labor organizing should be a civil right, which has now turned into legislation introduced in Congress by Keith Ellison and civil rights legend John Lewis. Can you tell us about the plan and how the bill came to be and why it's needed now? Sure, sure. Um, well, it, about two years ago, Rick and I uh, wrote the book, and then 
we've been writing articles in, in various places, uh, making the case that, that labor organizing should be a civil right. Um, and then a few months back, uh, Keith Ellison, uh, his staff contacted us and, and said that they were working on a bill based on the book and, uh, and wanted to know our thoughts on it. And it's the, the bill as they, they've kind of constructed it, um, would do something very similar to what we advocate in the book, which is it would add a, a section onto the uh, National Labor Relations Act, um, which essentially defines labor organizing as a civil right and would give uh, civil rights types uh, procedures and remedies for labor organizing. So if I'm understanding it correctly, you're essentially framing unionization as a civil right um, and therefore giving it kind of a different um, set of political entitlements attached to it. Um, and I was just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on why it's important to, um, you know, change the political framework around unionization in this way, because often we hear about workplace rights in terms of sort of uh, liberties, right, or, or workplace democracy or free choice. And uh, it's it's a similar concept, but a different framing of the freedom to join a union as opposed to the right to um, organize a union. And so I'm just wondering, is that a meaningful distinction? And you know, how might this play politically when you sort of shift the framing of it that way? Right. So you know, traditionally, um, labor rights have been kind of conceived of as as purely collective rights. You know, they don't. They don't belong to the individual in any meaningful way. They belong to the to the group. Um, so now, when you when your employer um, fires you for trying to organize a union or disciplines you or does any manner of things, you know, you go to the NLRB, file your charge, and that charge and complaint belongs to the government, and they can they can bring a case forward, and and you know, it's it's not really in your control in any real way or the union's control, um, and you know after just decades of cases where uh, labor rights have sort of been diminished through an individual rights framework. You know, the most recent one is Harris v. Quinn, where the court said that uh, that it violates workers' First Amendment rights to have to pay any fair share dues. So, you know, we thought the time was right to start thinking of it, of labor rights, as, in addition to being a collective right, also um, being an individual right, much like it's an individual right if someone is fired for um, being black at work or being a woman or um, being Muslim, any you know, manner of civil rights that, that people have at work. And, and the same should apply for people who, who try to organize a union, where if you're fired, you know, it's, it's both a collective right and an individual right. And you know, the kind of conversation in America is so switched to individual rights that we thought that now you know, this is a time to really promote this idea and, and and get it out there because it is something that I think speaks to more people now than uh, than just purely collective rights. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, um, when you frame it as um, a, a right under um, the, you know the National Labor Relations Act, it's almost defensive in the sense that you're offering a, a worker protection from retaliation for unionization. It's that extra layer. And I guess I'm I'm wondering, you know, fundamentally, you know, workplace organizing is uh, in a sense, a, a collective act. And one of the critiques that I've actually read of this proposal is that by using a rights-based framework that might actually take away a little bit from the actual 
proactive kind of agency involved in organizing a workplace, and it would push things even further into this bureaucratic realm of uh, the courts. And given the way workplace politics often work with employers using all sorts of dirty union-busting tactics, do you think there's something to be said for maybe not focusing so much on the union itself and unionization as an institution, um, you know, could that maybe distract from what some people see as the core of labor organizing, which is that kind of collective action? Right. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that um, critique as well. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, academically there's something there that, you know, that this idea of a dichotomy between collective and individual rights, I think in reality, it's, it's not so clear. And, you know, what this would do is it would essentially give workers and unions um, additional rights at work and the ability to to essentially have a strong tool against their employer. And much like, you know, what Title VII did, you know, in giving workers the right to, to bring these cases to court, it, it created a, a scenario where employers largely try to avoid uh, discriminatory conduct. I and mean, we see it still all the time, but it's not nearly as overt as it used to be. Um, you know, and, and Right now, you see the opposite in the labor context, where employers forget that the workers even have any rights. You know, they they threaten the CEOs of companies threaten openly to move the plant in violation of labor law. It's just it's the last thing on their mind. So, you know, yes, this would you know bring some of these cases into court, um, but you know the big advantage that is that companies really fear federal court, and the hope is that it would change the calculus for how a lot of companies act. I mean, some are just ideologically opposed to to unions and will take their risk. But a lot of them, if they see on the horizon this, you know, um, the possibility of, of spending millions of dollars in court and having to pay out millions of dollars to workers and having to put on their proxy uh, statements to investors that they've got tons of federal litigation against them, they're just going to act differently. You know, they're going to they're reassess how they treat unions um, and how they treat workers when they try to unionize. As it is now, it's, it's a you know, they just treat it as a cost of doing business, going to the board and um, and kind of paying the paltry penalties that are there. Yeah, yeah. And certainly there's more to gain from keeping at a union, you know, forever than, than it is to just pay the legal fees or whatever, get a settlement or something like that. Yeah, and, um, and one thing I would add, too, is that as much as, you know, I mean, organizing is very much a collective action. But the way that, you know, the sort of sophisticated means that many employers and, and uh, union busting groups have have sort of honed in on is you don't have to act against everyone. You just have to fire a few people who are kind of the most visible and, you know, really send a message that they're not afraid to break the law. And, you know, they single people out as individuals. And it gets harder and harder to kind of ask people who are living on less and less to take these risks and and uh, risk being fired and five years later get some sort of portion of their back pay um, versus actually making them whole under a civil rights framework. Mm-hmm. And you've written in the past about labor organizing outside the context of unions and um, what it means to sort of assert workplace rights and, and labor rights um, without that kind of institutional backing. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts in light of this legislation and some of the other research you've done, whether something like this should be maybe you know a chief focus of the labor movement if some of the trends seem to be away from formal unions and towards things like alt-labor or towards more informal networks of organizing. You know, it, it's not necessarily an either-or, but uh, do you see the, I guess, the priorities shifting in terms of uh, the politics of labor and, and what's feasible for organizing? Right. And, and I think, you know, 
it's, I think the focus is shifting um, to the idea of almost concerted activity, you know, workers acting together for, for their own, you know, benefit and to have a voice in the workplace. And whether that means um, a union or whether that means something else, I mean, the, the, I think the focus is rightly shifting. And we're seeing it all over the place, you know, from fast food workers who, who are demanding higher wage to in Volkswagen, the minority union there. And, you know, this legislation, you know, it's in the NLRA and it focuses on the idea of organizing and it wouldn't be limited to people who you know form a union the idea is when workers get together and you know assert a voice in the workplace they they would get protections you know a lot of people think of the the labor board as being only for for unions it's not it's anytime two workers act together and the way this legislation is crafted and, and included in the uh, in the NLRA it would protect workers in taking actions you know that don't necessarily lead to to you know forming a union but just collective actions so I, I do think it fits that model, and, and we're seeing it more and more, um, and I think that's a, a real positive, um, the, the various ways that workers um, and groups are experimenting with, with getting you know, rights and, and benefits in the workplace. Yeah, you had a piece up at, in these times recently about minority unionism as a tactic for labor to expand um, in places like the Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga. Reports are now saying that the UAW is close to actually expanding that minority union to the majority of the workforce. I was wondering how you connect that model to the idea of union organizing as a civil right. Well, I think, you know, what we're seeing in Volkswagen and, and um, you know, I've seen it other places. It's not, you know, minority unions are still pretty uncommon in America, but um, there's a, I know UE has a, a pretty strong minority union in North Carolina and um, there's a few others um, around, but uh, you know, in in at Volkswagen, the, the workers aren't really facing a hostile employer, so I don't think they really have a lot to fear in terms of being fired or discriminated against for their union activity. But in other settings, assuming this spreads, making it a civil right would protect workers in forming a minority union, which is essentially just a collection of workers who are demanding that the employer bargain with them. But there's no uh, requirement of the NLRA that the employer bargain with them. So if a group of employees at a plant or any workplace were to form a minority union and the employer turned around and started harassing those employees or um, really testing the strength of the organization, you know, under a civil rights approach, they would have some, some real remedies in terms of fighting back. And in addition, if they're not sort of being sponsored by a union, um, they could go and find an attorney because the the legislation provides attorney fees um, for union attorneys. So right now, you know, the the bar of of labor side attorneys is exceptionally small. I mean, it's the few who work at unions and are here and there do a little side work. But um, under this approach, it would actually give attorney fees much like there are under Title VII. So you could find an attorney. They could work on contingency and you know the the, when they, if you're successful, the payment for the attorney would come from the employer, which is another thing employers hate doing. <laughs> and we love making employers do things they hate doing. I mean, the, the, the last thing an anti-union employer wants to do is fund the labor movement by paying their attorneys. So, um, you know, if that's something they have to consider when they, when they act, that's, that's just another benefit, I think. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting framework. Um, but of course, to be blunt and throw some cold water on this whole thing, the odds of getting pro-union legislation through the current Congress are about as good as the odds of getting the Ferguson Police Department to unilaterally disarm right now. Um, 
What's the value, though, of putting forth this legislation at a time when it's unlikely to get through, when, when nothing can get through Congress? I mean, I think the approach that labor has to take to getting real labor law reform is you, know, you get you get really, you know, some of these leading congressmen and congresswomen like, uh, you know, John Lewis and Keith Ellison to, to introduce it now and keep introducing it every year. And, and, you know, then you have organization on the ground. You have um, lawsuits that challenge the idea that it's not a civil right. Um, and, you know, in time, this idea becomes normalized. I mean, it's it's very similar to what uh, what the gay rights movement has done. You know, it, the uh, Employee Non-Discrimination Act, um, which would protect gays and lesbians in the workplace, has been introduced for over 25 years in Congress. Um, and 25 years ago, it had no chance of passing. It's now on the cusp of passing. I mean, it's close. And I think this sort of coordinated approach where, you know, you do it in the courts and, and in the uh, legislatures and, and on the streets is, is the only way to go about it. Um, I think it's part of what went wrong with EFCA. It was just a, a piece of legislation that was kind of hard to to get too excited about because it was just about technical labor law and then there wasn't really any other sort of organization or education behind it. Would it be possible to do something like this on the state level? There's some things you could do. I mean, unfortunately, um, the way labor law is interpreted is that uh, it, it's, you know, federal labor law preempts uh, states and, and cities from doing too much. But you know, one thing I've been uh, talking to people about and I think would be a, a good approach is there's a lot of groups that are written out of the NLRA, you know, independent contractors, which is a, a growing group, um, domestic workers, agricultural workers, that states and cities could pass um, a law like this that would give these sort of protections to those groups. And we can see how it works, but they probably wouldn't be able to do it for anyone covered under the uh, National Labor Relations Act because the courts would say that it, they're preempted and that field belongs to the federal government. Interesting idea of, uh, you know, turning that exclusion into an asset in terms of doing things that haven't been tried before in, in labor law. It's what the farmers work, workers did and, and, you know, in California and, and it was, a you know, their agricultural labor relations board is better than the NLRA. So it's, you know, it is something that, that can be gained. Um, you know, Cesar Chavez was famous for not wanting to be covered by the by uh, federal labor law because he saw it as having as many problems as, as benefits. Yes, certainly. How prescient. Um, <laughs> though, I, I guess um, looking at this legislation, and it seems like a very specific response to flaws that are endemic to American labor law and that have, uh, you know, have a very long history of union busting behind them. And I was wondering if you had done any, you know, international comparisons and seen how it works in other countries. I mean, what is, uh, what kind of inherent rights to unionization do workers have in, in say, Europe or uh, places with, um, you know, stronger traditions of trade unionism? Yeah, I mean, America's sort of an anomaly in this regard. In most other industrial democracies, labor rights are considered human rights. You know, in the ILO conventions that the parts that America did not sign on to, um, they say it's a, it's a human right. Um, and in most countries, it's, it's recognized as that. So, it's it's a bit tricky to do the, the comparison because they've long been recognized as such, and that's part of the argument we make. But the business community in other countries aren't as a, as a anti-labor as they are here. You know, there's there's some things written about the way German businesses deal with with unions, and for the most part, it's you know, it, I mean, you do find some that are anti-labor, but it's not as vociferous as it is in America. You know, they don't openly 
defy the law and, and, and harass workers. And, and part of that is because unions are much stronger, which is part of what this, this legislation is trying to do is and the idea is it'll help unions grow and labor to get more power so that it can actually assert more of its strength. Because as it is, it's just too weak to really get anything done or in Congress or really uh, fight back against a lot of these employers. So to switch gears a little bit, literally, uh, I, I was going to ask about Mechanical Turk. Um, and uh, you talk about this new forms of contingent and casualized labor um, that essentially kind of roboticize everyday tasks and turn them into labor through some kind of digital marketplace. Um, and uh, it's been a while since your uh, article in The Nation came out uh, looking at Mechanical Turk. And I was just wondering if you could update us on, you know, how some of the, the labor conflicts brewing around that have, have been turning out. I, I think last time you wrote about it, there's a lawsuit pending. Um, and does that connect in any way with what you're exploring here, which is talking about um, broadening pathways to unionization, you know, even in non-conventionally unionized uh, workspaces? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it will, I think it connects to the idea you brought up of, you know, workers kind of working together outside of a union context. I'm not certain, based on the research I did with Mechanical Turk and crowd workers, I'm not certain we'd ever see anything uh, approximating a traditional labor union in in that world. It's just, it's so different. Um, and everyone involved is sort of anonymous and doesn't, you know, doesn't really know each other in, in any real regard. So it's hard to build the sort of, you know, solidarity and, and sacrifice that you need for for a traditional union, but that's not to say that you can't have real collective action, and and that does um, occur in the in the message boards and and in different fora and you know on uh, you know different uh, kind of programs like Turk Opticon that that help workers rate employers and find the ones that are scamming them and you know push back against the way the the this labor market is built, which is it's uh you know very much skewed against employees in in all regard. And you know, the, it was um, it was a class action suit and a collective action, which is is kind of a technical distinction. But it was it was both. And the last I checked, um, a settlement had been submitted and rejected by the judge. So um, it wasn't clear why, but the judge rejected it, and they were back at the drawing board. Um, I, I'm not certain if it has since settled, but you know, whatever happens with this lawsuit, it's it's important because it's the first of its kind but it's not going to be the last one. I mean, it's it was just the first one to really assert that these workers have rights as employees and, you know, no matter what the company says, they're being treated like employees. You know, they're being supervised and controlled in various ways, and, and for a lot of them, it's their only work. Um, and so kind of using traditional employment law tests, they look like employees. And it, and it helped that a lot of these, you know, 26-year-old CEOs go on TV and say, you know, how great they're labor market is because they supervise their their workers so well. You know, you're finding this world where they're pretty open with the fact that they are violating their workers' rights and that, you know, they only pay them a dollar an hour and, and they're excited about that. That is still an expanding world and, you know, I think we're we're gonna see a lot more of it soon as, you know, these scripts develop. Can you just outline a little bit for people who are not familiar with this particular format of labor? I mean, what exactly was uh, were the workers who brought the suit demanding, and how how would their working arrangement have changed if they were indeed certified as employees? Yeah, so these uh, these workers were you know they were workers who had worked on the uh, Crowdflower platform, which is one of 
you know, dozens or hundreds of these uh, crowd work platforms. And a lot of crowd flower work goes through Mechanical Turk. You know, you have these sort of labor platforms and then, you know, secondary ones and, you know, tertiary ones. And Crowdflower was one of them. And they have millions of workers that do all sorts of tasks. And the plaintiffs in the suit basically said that they're being paid um, about a dollar an hour to do repetitive tasks. And they're treated like independent contractors, but everything about the arrangement um, indicates that they're, in fact, employees. And so, you know, as employees, they would have to be paid a state or federal minimum wage. And some of these are from Oregon, so, you know, the state minimum wage would be or eight or nine dollars an hour, um, somewhere from California. I mean, it wasn't clear how many it would be in this class action. I mean, there was the company claimed there there could be as many as five million. So it's a, a huge group. And if they won or win the suit, then they would have to be paid minimum wage. They'd have to be paid overtime. They would have to get a host of workplace protections. A lot of crowd workers I talk to talk about all kinds of health difficulties they've they've uh, developed because of their work. You know carpal tunnel syndrome, strained eyes, problems sitting, because a lot of these workers work for, you know, 80, 100-hour weeks sitting there doing repetitive tasks. They stay up all night waiting for for the work to come in because of the the sort of flexibility of the marketplace. You know, a batch of work may come in at, you know, 3.30 in the morning, and you got to be ready to do it. So they they would get be able to get workers' compensation. They'd be able to get unemployment if they, you know, lost a certain amount of work. I mean, and they'd be protected from any kind of harassment they face, you know, like uh, any sexual harassment or um, or harassment based on, on race or hiring based on race. You know, one of the things I, I saw in those marketplaces is you can choose, for instance, not to hire, um, you know, people from India because the idea was that Indian workers were, were not quite as honest. And, you know, that's that's just wrong on so many levels. But if they're independent contractors, it's not illegal. Um, so, that they would get those protections as well. So it would re- really radically change the nature of the marketplace um, and really make it look a lot more like, like work as we understand it rather than as a sort of, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe what they're doing, like, like machines almost. Wait, did you say 5 million people might qualify? Yeah, yeah. That, that would make them an, probably one of the largest employers like in the country, in the world. Yeah, I mean, and, and it would make yeah. it one of the largest uh employment class actions um you know this this group is 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 huge and it grows um and some of the people on there i mean a lot of them do it as a side thing um you know for a couple extra bucks here and there but you know there's there's some research done that shows that you know a significant percentage do this as their sole employment and they rely entirely on this um so um yeah you're talking about a, a big a big group of workers and that's just one company you know that's crowdflower um you know, Mechanical Turk, I don't know how many are on there. Amazon refused to, to respond to me. They uh, haven't told anyone. So it's anyone's guess how many people do it. And America is one of the main places where these workers work, but there's also a lot of them in India, a lot in Pakistan, a lot in Romania. Um, they tend to come from, from certain countries, but I think still the majority of them are in America. Yeah. It's interesting. I wrote about TaskRabbit recently when they had changed their algorithm for sending people to go do these, you know, short-term gigs. And they saw a lot of pushback from their workers. And it's kind of interesting to watch how these companies that rely on being super high-tech and and super connected actually 
are, you know, they're relying on employees who are very good at using the internet to communicate with each other. You know, it was it was fascinating to watch these Facebook groups sort of pop up immediately of people who do TaskRabbit who are mad at TaskRabbit. It's, you know, it's not a union, but it is a kind of organizer. Right. TaskRabbits of the world unite. It would be great if, yeah, no, I was thinking like there, this could be just a whole new arena, not just of, of labor law, but of, of workplace organizing, right? Just, you know, exploring new digital platforms for actually connecting workers to each other because, you know, one of the ways that technology has been used to atomize workforces and alienate workers is, is precisely by, by, you know, alienating workers from each other. So, you know, who knows? Yeah, and, and you know, I, I was speaking to a... a the general counsel of one uh, large union. And I was trying to, when I was writing this article, I was saying like, this is a group that you guys should really be uh, really investing in and trying to make connections with the workers in part because they, they need help, but also because, you know, these are the, are the people online who have an enormous amount of breadth and power in terms of, of, uh, of understanding the internet and, and affecting the conversation on the internet, which is how we have conversations these days. And so if you have a workplace issue or, um, are striking somewhere. I mean, and you can get solidarity with TaskRabbit workers, with uh, Turk, with Turk workers, with you know um, Uber workers, like with all these groups of workers. Um, you can really, you know, get your message out in a way that that labor's kind of been struggling with. It would be an enormous benefit to um, have these workers who are adept at the internet and understanding online forums and and all that to help other workers and 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 vice versa. So to, to close out, um, we understand that you've been following pretty closely the attacks on labor from the National Right to Work Committee and the Legal Quote Unquote Defense Foundation. Um, after Harris v. Quinn, which we've discussed fairly extensively on this show, what's the next step for the right to work folks? What are they up to now? Well, they just filed a lawsuit in Minnesota just, I guess, um, last week maybe or a week and a half ago um, where it's a similar situation like Harris v. Quinn. Um, home care workers um, have been granted the right to to elect a, a union and so there's currently a, um, a mail-in ballot election going on which the deadline I think is the 25th and so after the ballots went out National Right to Work filed this lawsuit and they made kind of a a novel legal argument, which they raised a little bit in Harris v. Quinn and then quickly dropped because it's so bizarre. But they're going after exclusive representation now. And, you know, the idea is they're saying that it's a violation of the um, petition clause of the First Amendment, which gives you the right to, to petition the government for redress, to have an organization like a union, you know, discuss the terms and conditions of, of your work um, on your behalf. And so they're saying beyond the fact that you know, you don't have to pay anything. You know, it's, it's essentially now going to be a right-to-work model because of Harris v. Quinn. So you don't pay anything, but just having the union negotiate on your behalf is a violation of your First Amendment rights. And I found out about, like, just this afternoon that the um, the judge denied their, their request for a preliminary injunction. So we'll get to see the tally on the 26th, and my guess is they'll vote for, for the union since these workers have seen huge benefits coming with unionizing and then the next day national right to work is going to file their case again so this is the next attack is against exclusive representation they want to you know force every public sector union to be a members only union and my guess is if they get that then the next step will be 
you know, attacking the idea of uh, governments negotiating with any group of workers, saying that that somehow violates the Constitution. And that was Moshe Marvit speaking about his idea for making labor organizing a civil right. And the bill is currently pending in Congress. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for Arg! I wish I'd written that, where we bring you our picks for the week of stories that we wish we had written, but alas, did not. My pick for the week is called Teaching is Not a Business by David Kirp. It was in the New York Times. And it was a commentary on um, this increasing drive to make teaching uh, more like a corporate enterprise, uh, what with uh, charter schools and all these newfangled uh, teaching and learning technologies, um, these increasing pushes for uh, things like race to the top, where you're trying to get teachers to be more supposedly innovative by coming out with all these uh, strange gimmicks to supposedly get kids to perform better on tests, and of course, um, the constant pressure to score well to make certain measurements of student achievement and to kind of, uh, you know, slot students into this very narrow idea of what makes an ideal student and challenges this notion. He basically explains why teaching as a business is a bad idea. And chiefly, he argues that it commodifies education in a way that ultimately uh, devalues it. First of all, it makes kids miserable. And for the teachers, it really saps the joy out of the craft of teaching. Moreover, um, it often has unproven results, despite promising to be more scientifically sound than other traditional approaches to teaching. And he writes... Marketplace mantras dominate policy discussions. High-stakes reading and math tests are treated as the single metric of success, the counterpart to the business bottom line. Teachers whose students do poorly on these tests get pink slips, while those whose students excel receive merit pay, much as businesses pay bonuses to their star performers and fire the laggards. Just as companies shut stores that aren't meeting their sales quotas, opening new ones in more promising territory, failing schools are closed, and so-called turnaround model schools with new teachers and administrators take their place. This approach might sound plausible in a think tank, but in practice it has been a flop. Firing teachers rather than giving them the coaching they need undermines morale. In some cases, it may well discourage undergraduates from pursuing careers in teaching, and with a looming teacher shortage as baby boomers retire, that's a recipe for disaster. So basically, he concludes by saying that um, this sort of no-excuses approach to education you know, fosters a really corporate, competitive atmosphere at schools that is ultimately antithetical to learning. What you want to do is foster trust between students and teachers and also trust between teachers and communities. And if you've been following our podcasts for the last few weeks, we've been reporting a lot on uh, these increasing attacks on teachers and teachers unions and uh, specifically including lawsuits that are attacking teacher tenure rules and things like that. So um, when we think about workplace security, job security for teachers, we're also thinking about a challenge to a model of education that tries to turn kids into widgets. Kids are not widgets, neither should anyone else be. That is the core sentiment in the piece that I wish I'd written this week, last week, 
every week. <laughs> the movement for shorter working hours is having a tiny bit of a revival, at least in the pages of left-leaning publications, if not quite yet in the streets. I've written about it myself and discussed in the early days of this podcast that we haven't talked about this for a while. Um, we talked about it on episode 3 and 19, I think. Um, now, Nathan Schneider has a great piece up at Vice called Who Stole the Four-Hour Workday? That succinctly details the movement for shorter hours, how it grew, how it faded, who died, and how endless work took over our lives. He introduces us to the hardworking man behind the global campaign for the four-hour workday, points out the myriad ways that shorter working hours could help benefit almost everyone, and points out who our current obsession with working all the damn time benefits. Quote, a new American dream has gradually replaced the old one. Instead of leisure or thrift, consumption has become a patriotic duty. Corporations can justify anything from environmental destruction to prison construction for the sake of inventing more work to do. A liberal arts education originally meant to prepare people to use their free time wisely has been repackaged as an expensive and inefficient job training program. We have stopped imagining, as Keynes thought it so reasonable to do, that our grandchildren might have it easier than ourselves. We hope they'll have jobs, maybe even jobs they like. End quote. It is always worth reminding people that the eight-hour day isn't some natural equilibrium that humans simply settled into, but one that was fought for through decades of struggle and sometimes brutal crackdowns that left organizers dead. It's also worth noting, as Schneider does, that other countries do have shorter working hours, more paid vacation, as we mentioned last episode, and a more equitable distribution of unpaid labor in the home. I just have one quibble with Nathan's piece. Why four hours? Lucy Parsons, a lifelong labor organizer, told crowds back in 1886 that a hundred years ago, Benjamin Franklin said that six hours a day was enough for anyone to work, and if he was right then, two hours a day ought to be enough now. If two hours a day was enough for Lucy Parsons back in 1886, where should we be? After all, we're challenging people to dream big. And that's all for this week. Please tune in two weeks from now, and if you have any comments, questions, story ideas, please find us on Twitter at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored. Belabored.